1: Are you ready
2: to begin?
0: Yes, I'm all set here. Yeah. Any programme about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space.
3: Hey, Houston, the charger. has landed.
1: Mr. Station, we are ready for the Thank you.
4: Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And this time, we're heading to Mars...
2: Now, that whirring sound you can hear in the background there was from the wheels of a prototype European Mars rover. The final version is being sent to the Red Planet in 2018, so we've come to the Airbus Defence and Space Factory in Stevenage to meet some of the engineers who are working on the project.
4: Also, this time we hear from the team behind the new cameras that have been fitted to the International Space Station to offer us live views of Earth. And all the things that are good about the world's
2: smallest satellite.
0: Substantially cheaper, substantially smaller, substantially easier than anything that's flown in space before.
2: With us is structures engineer Abby Hutty, who's working on the ExoMars rover, and advanced system architect Matthew Stuttard. That's rather a cool title for what I believe is sort of advanced concepts, including the next Earth observation missions.
5: Yes, indeed. Uh, we're looking into the future beyond missions that are currently being implemented 10 years and more ahead as to what might be happening in commercial areas of space primarily rather than the science aspects.
2: Well, we'll catch up with Mr Future a little later on, but we're going to begin with Bridget because that's the name of this Mars rover. It's pretty big, actually. It's about the size of a very small smart car. It's got four... no, six wheels... It's on a carpet for us with some strategically placed rocks so that Abby can navigate it up and around the rocks. And at the moment, it's in what I can only describe as a gold foil cocktail dress. Bridget may be old, but she's obviously been given a little bit of a a new lease of life here, Abby.
3: Yes, uh, the final rover will actually be gold-plated for thermal reasons, so it's just so that it looks similar to that final rover. Now, Bridget
2: is quite, I say old, but um, what I really mean is, as she was a a prototype, she's perhaps not in the first, you know, flushes of youth here, is she?
3: (laughs) Well, Bridget was the very first prototype that we built to demonstrate that we were capable of building a Mars rover. And since then, we've developed the design quite a lot further. So Bridget is largely used for outreach purposes, going out and inspiring the next generation sometimes to do field trials as well we take her out and do testing in cold dry environments like the Atacama Desert was the last one so that she can demonstrate some of the actual equipment that are going on the rover as well.
2: So what have you learned from this this rover I love the fact that the two cameras on the top of its a extension a bit like a scooter handle they look like a pair of eyes there.
3: Well, we actually have two cameras at the top of the mast so that we can see in three dimensions, like we humans have two eyes. And that's what gives us our depth perception on Mars, so that we can actually see what's in front of us, work out how big it is, and then decide whether or not we can actually traverse that terrain.
2: Now, there's a big difference, though, between Bridget and the modern ExoMars rover. Before we get into what that rover is going to do, tell a little bit about the conditions that a rover like this we'll have to cope with on the Martian surface?
3: Okay, so we know that Mars is obviously rocky and sandy, but the things that we also have to take into account is it's really, really cold there, so much, much colder than we'd expect to find here on Earth. So materials behave in a very different way in those kind of environments. We've also got a very harsh radiation environment there because they're not protected by an atmosphere in quite the same way as we are here on Earth. So we've got a harsh radiation environment. And then we have to deal with low power constraints and things like that as well because we can only make as much power as we can collect from our solar arrays. So we've got all kinds of things to consider simultaneously.
2: Now you're operating, Bridget, with a little remote control, the sort you'd see if you were using a, a computer game or an Xbox or something like that. But the ExoMars is going to be autonomous.
3: Yes, that's one of the big things that we've really been developing with ExoMars is a full autonomous navigation suite. So the software is very advanced. It can actually look at what's in front of it, determine how big the obstacles are and whether or not that's a safe place to go and then plan its own path through those obstacles in front of it to reach a goal that we give it. So we can give it a goal, it doesn't even have to be within its field of view and then it can work its own way out to get there and then just phone home when it gets there and say OK, I'm here, what science do you want me to do?
4: So tell us about the ExoMars mission. It's a mission that's evolved to be uh, diplomatic over the last few years. It's now two missions. a 2016 mission and a 2018 mission. And it's the 2018 mission that you're, you're building the rover for.
3: Yes, so the 2016 mission, we're sending an orbiter. So that's going to be a trace gas orbiter. It's going to tell us a lot more about the composition of the atmosphere of Mars. And it will also be able to send back lots of imagery and data. We also have on board there an actual entry, descent and landing demonstrator. So this is what we're going to use to test that our design that we're going to then develop into the landing module for the final rover is adequate. So that in 2018 we can send our rover with its new landing module and hopefully safely land on the surface and do everything that we want to do with our rover. And
4: how much are you having to do from scratch? I mean, you know, reinventing the Martian rover wheel, if you like, given that NASA has done this before and is doing it right now.
3: We're approaching the design for our rover in quite a different way to NASA so whilst we do share some data and it is quite a collaborative process we share all the data that comes back from our orbiters our actual design has a very different focus we're solar powered, um, we're a lot lighter and all of those kind of things so it's not that applicable maybe the design that they've got.
2: As a structures engineer, Abby, I know that you've got various test facilities uh, in the buildings surrounding us here. What sort of testing will go on for ExoMars here?
3: In terms of the structure, uh, we do a, a, quite an extensive selection of tests that are at low temperatures because that's one of the key driving forces for our, our materials and our structure there. Um, also, the vibrations that we're going to experience during launch that'll actually try and tear the structure apart, vibrate the structure apart. And other things that we can test, we've got a a big Mars yard that we're developing here, which has representative types of sand and rock that we can test the driving capabilities over, make sure that our functionality of our driving system means that we're not ever going to get stuck in sand or damaged when we fall off rocks, that kind of thing.
2: Now, I know you've put down, so that we're indoors, you know, this orange carpet and rocks, inside this brick almost like a I like the way someone's warehouse. gone out to I a carpet
4: did. shop and bought an appropriately <laughs> coloured carpet. Yeah. Right.
2: But Mars Yard which you've been in Richard it's um sort of closed for business at the moment because you're getting a, a brand spanking new one.
3: Well yes we're very excited. We did have a Mars Yard facility previously and that was very useful for our preliminary design development but now we've actually got several prototypes that have all been developed in conjunction, so looking at different aspects of the design, so some of them are developing the software, some of them are developing the hardware, the actual structure of the rover... And we need to be able to test those simultaneously to continue developing each of these streams of design. So we're going to have a much bigger facility, it opens very soon, and be able to test several ropes simultaneously, which will be great.
2: I love the fact that you can come to Stevenage and go to Mars. I just think well, it's that... Space
5: Town, isn't it? You're in <laughs> Space Town now, aren't you? Yeah. And the soil that we put in that Mars yard is as close as we can get it, to Martian soil. Of course, it's not real Martian soil. If we had that, we wouldn't have to go to Mars. (laughs) It it tries to replicate the mechanical characteristics of Mars soil.
4: Now, I've seen the Curiosity rover, or at least the identical twin of the Curiosity rover, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. And I managed to break that, or at least jam it on a on a rock. How difficult is it to, to drive this? And are you trying to push it to the limits to make sure... I notice you're not giving me the controls. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that you do push it to the limits and see what it can do.
3: Well, it is very useful to be able to test exactly how steep an incline you can climb up, how deep a sand drift you can go through, and all of those kind of things, so that you set yourselves limits. But then once you're actually on mars and we've got our autonomous navigation in place we're never going to take risks that we don't think that we're going to be able to survive so the whole idea of this autonomous navigation is we know what our limits are and we make sure that we behave completely safely so that we won't lose the mission
2: what i find quite impressive is is that it's got the turning circle of a black cab it's really tight Mm.
3: we can actually turn fully on the spot So that means that if we get to a point and maybe there's a sand slip in front of us or something like that and you really can't go any further forward or to either side you can turn completely on the spot and get out the way you came. And
4: the idea is that with this autonomous system it'll see those sort of things coming?
3: Well yes, the problem really for a human controller is there's a massive signal delay to Mars. So at times it can be as bad as 22 minutes each way just in getting a radio signal to Mars. So that obviously limits how you drive your rover. If you're doing it remote controller, you have to say, drive forward two metres, and then you wait 40 <laughs> minutes for it to do it and then send back the signal to say that it's done it. So autonomy will definitely be able to get us to the science sites so and doing the exciting things much faster and much more efficiently than driving remotely. It's bumping
4: across the the rocks behind us. Are you looking forward? Are you going to get to actually drive it on Mars?
3: Well, theoretically, nobody drives it while it's on Mars because it's driving itself. Great stuff. Matthew, I know you've been
2: working on future concepts for Mars rovers.
5: What would be the next sort of after ExoMars? There's a few things to mention there. One is you always want to go further, faster. And reduce risk. So this autonomy thing is increasing autonomy. So you can really go very long distances. And if you're staying in the domain of wheeled rovers, then you might want a rover that can test the ground ahead. Because although uh, ExoMars uh, rover will be able to determine a 3D terrain map and navigate through that very well, it can't determine the, the properties of the soil ahead. So if there's a, like a sand trap. It has to be a bit careful to avoid those kinds of areas. And if you want to test whether it, the soil can actually bear the weight, maybe you want a little probe scout rover that can run ahead and, and test that out. We're actually Engaged in a project that's doing exactly that, and and having a little scout rover going ahead to do mechanical testing of the soil. So
2: Star Wars, I love it. it. Yes,
5: but then think further than that. I mean, some of the most interesting places on Mars are probably not on terrain that you can go over with a wheeled rover. What if it's on cliff sides? What if it's down a canyon? What about if you had rock climbing rovers? that could detach from a wheeled rover and then go down a cliff or abseiling devices to get to very interesting geological areas. So those are ideas for the future too.
2: Are you wedded to wheels? Because although this one is doing a great job of going over a number of different size rocks, varying in height from, say, 4 or 5 centimetres to sort of about 15 or so, does it have to be wheels? Do you not have to think well, maybe one step further than that?
5: Well, there have been all kinds of studies. People have looked at uh, flying, for example. It's rather difficult on Mars because the atmosphere is very, very thin, so you, you can't get uh, uh, lift as you can on Earth at, uh, atmosphere. But uh, the idea of being able to hop to um, pressurise the Martian atmosphere inside a pressure vessel, then release this and shoot up into the air under a guidance system and then land in a controlled manner, maybe hundreds of metres away from where you currently are, or even kilometres. That would allow you to go even greater distances more quickly but, of course, you have to have a, an extremely intelligent autonomous system to be able to do that. But we have been looking at a Mars hopper as a very advanced project idea uh, in the recent past. Whether that ever gets funded, of course, is certainly open to question.
2: Meanwhile, Abby, what sort of state is the new ExoMars rover in at the moment?
3: Well, we're just beginning to get some hardware in, so it's a really exciting time for us, actually. So testing the actual uh, mechanical properties of those, those structural materials. And then we're beginning to get some of the flight representative equipments that are going on board the rover in as well, so we can start doing our testing of those systems and how they interact with each other. So it's all systems go at the moment.
4: Well, Avi and Matthew, thanks very much for now. Do stay with us. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and on our blog at spaceboffins.com.
2: In November, along with food, drink and an Olympic torch, two cameras were delivered to the International Space Station by a Soyuz rocket.
1: And we had liftoff, liftoff of the Soyuz rocket and the TMA-11M spacecraft on a truly Olympic leap, delivering three more crew members to the International Space Station on a historic mission to continue the seamless transition of humans on their own relay to continue studying science in space.
2: The cameras were built in the UK by RAL Space for the Canadian company EarthCast and will provide users on the ground with free live pictures of Earth from space. Two cosmonauts fitted the cameras to the outside of the space station on January the 27th, and I joined members of the RAL space team in Oxfordshire as they watched a live feed of the action. Can I just ask you, this is for Space Buffins podcast, just how it's going so far?
5: So far it's all going well. We've got the high-resolution camera installed. We're getting some good images from the cosmonauts' cameras showing the high-resolution camera in place. They're now working through checking all the connectors, making sure everything's connected up properly, and now giving things a bit of a wipe-off because things have got a bit dirty on the outside of the space station. So they're just making sure they can see all the labels they need to see and check everything's all right. And then soon they'll be moving on to remove the medium-resolution camera out and start to bring that across to install. So far, so good. let will see how it goes. Uh,
4: be down their suits, of, uh,
5: Edward English Jones. Uh, also keeping an
2: eye on progress was the director of RAL Space, Professor Richard Holdaway.
1: The camera itself is all made, tested and integrated at RAL Space. The detectors, which are the, the chips inside the cameras, like you have in a digital camera that you take your own photographs with, those are provided by another British company, E2V. So it's, it's a great story for the UK. It's world-leading technology. It's the only technology that, that exists now that the camera is up in space. And, of course, there are plenty of follow-ons that are coming from that already. So so Space is already discussing the next generation for even higher-resolution cameras both with Earthcast, NASA have some interest as well in similar developments as does the European Space Agency, again all using real space cameras.
2: And the key thing here, isn't it, is it's high definition. How much better than what has been done before?
1: It's about an order of magnitude, so 10 times better than anything that's ever been done before. It's one-metre resolution video, so you can't pick out individual faces of people. uh, But you could get their car. But you can get their car. And, of course, bearing in mind that this is still from a a height of 260 miles, so it's, it's, it's a long way away. It's not like Google Street View, so there are no particular privacy issues. You can't see individual people. You can see individual cars, but you can't read the number plate. So, you know, privacy is is protected. And in any case, you can see that kind of thing from from aircraft. Um, the difference between space and aircraft is simply that with space you get much greater coverage; you get almost total global coverage. Whereas with an aircraft, you just get a very small strip of land below that you're flying over.
2: We've just heard it, some of the spacewalk there with it being installed. So, when is this going to be up and running?
1: The spacewalk today installs the cameras. The first. Images and video will probably be taken in the next week because they have to check the cameras out and they have to check all the systems are are operational. And as with any spacecraft, that takes a bit of time.
2: So So by the time this podcast goes out, you'll already have your first video from the camera.
1: the first images and the first video will be down uh, by the the 10th of February they probably won't have been released because they obviously with as with any sy- new system they want to check out everything completely but we'll have seen the first images and the first video and the expectation is that um, the the first ones for public release will be by the end of February early March time
2: you look sort of quietly excited I oh, must say
1: a- absolutely I mean i we hold the patent on these cameras, and, and, and uh, we took that out 10 years ago, and we've been developing other cameras since this is the first video one, but it's been a fabulous journey, and, and it's been just phenomenally exciting, even this afternoon, you know just watching the cosmonauts on the outside of the space station in real time, installing our camera built here in this laboratory. it's been wonderful.
4: Richard Holdaway from Rouse Space. Well, we've been following the progress of EarthCast for quite a while, both for Space Boffins and BBC Future. And there is a lot of excitement about the project, isn't
5: there, Matthew? And let's just explain the name, EarthCast. Oh, yes. Um, it's called uh, EarthCast because it's You Are The Cast. So it's looking down on Earth and we are all the cast for the camera.
4: bet they had lots of meetings to discuss that.
5: It's an inspired idea anyway, isn't it? So uh, I don't think it would be too difficult to come up with a name like that if you're so imaginative. Uh, do you think then it's, it's what they call a disruptive technology that will
4: really mess with the Google Maps and, and the Google Earth that people will think, actually, this is more exciting, near live pictures of Earth from space?
5: Yes and no, because it's really something that is going to inspire the masses. This is about getting lots of people interested in being able to really interact with space and and being able to see what's happening right now and um, being able, maybe their business model is very interesting. If you're prepared to pay a fee uh, they will have it film over your football field and you can make a hello mum picture with lots of your friends and you can see that from space and that's a fantastic idea so this is really about the business model and of course this the high-resolution video camera is one-metre resolution, so it's not going to show individuals, but it'll show quite a lot of detail, and it will, I understand, take something like 150, 60-second uh, segments per orbit, potentially. So, And it's highly steerable as well, so it, it can point in all kinds of directions, but it can't do the whole Earth all at one time. So you can buy a view from it over an area that you're interested in that's a very interesting idea but I'm not sure that it's going to change um, what we know as conventional earth observation imaging for a whole bunch of technical reasons which perhaps uh, I won't go into at the moment I was
4: going to say the less technical reason is it could go overhead you could plan your whole day you could do your wedding
5: you'll plan your wedding when it's coming overhead and it's cloudy That's always one of the problems with uh, optical imaging. Of course, radar imaging uh, doesn't have that problem with nighttime and, and cloud. And, of course, as it's not in a sun-synchronous orbit because the International Space Station is, is in a, in a low-Earth orbit at a lower inclination. You're, it is going into night, you know, really quite, quite frequently, and the illumination conditions and so on are going to be different. But still, hell, it's a webcam in space. That's fantastic.
2: <laughs> it is indeed. And uh, we just lost Abby there for a second. who had a coughing fit. You can come back in, uh, Abby. There you go. Um, Matthew... You're working on future concepts, Earth observation satellites as well. So, what's the future of Earth observation satellites?
5: Well, there's an interesting future in these projects to have small satellites, many small satellites imaging the Earth from up close. But one thing that we're looking at is putting a very high-resolution camera on a telescope in a geostationary orbit. So this is where the current communication satellites are. And as you know, communication satellites have a fixed view of one part of the Earth. And if you can put a camera that far away but with a powerful enough optics on it, then you can get really a rock-steady view of one part of the Earth in uh, continuous mode. So the idea with putting a a very capable camera with a huge optical system on it at geostationary is you could get 2-metre, 3-metre resolution imagery in colour, in video mode, monitoring quite large areas on a continuous basis, not just as you fly past at uh, 7,000 kilometres an hour, but, uh, you know, you've got a fixed view of the Earth. That would enable all kinds of new things, situation monitoring, monitoring major events, looking at disasters, that sort of thing, and being able to get this kind of real-time view that space systems that we have at the moment don't really give you.
4: Now, regular listeners will know that a while back we bought a satellite. A tiny, tiny satellite, around the size of two postage stamps and as thin as a slice of processed cheese. It was part of the KickSat project, a crowd funded spacecraft conceived by Cornell University student Zach Manchester. Well, now it's a reality. The 30 centimeter long KickSat satellite is due to be launched in March, carrying a hundred of these even smaller satellites known as Sprites. Unfortunately, due to an administrative error, our sprite was not loaded on board, but we're still going to follow the project via the East Anglian Amateur Radio Observatory, who are tracking the sprites from their base in Hertfordshire, and particularly ones operated by the British Interplanetary Society. Well, A few days ago, I spoke to Zach about the project and what happens next.
0: The idea here is to make space super cheap and accessible to as many people as possible, so that hobbyists, um, ham radio clubs, high school students, university students, anyone really who's interested would be able to do this for, you know, eventually a few hundred dollars. So substantially cheaper, substantially smaller, substantially easier than anything that's flown in space before.
4: And these are all packed into a mothership, if you like, a, 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 a normal size CubeSat satellite.
0: That's right. So up to now, the sort of smallest and uh, cheapest way to get into space was in something called the CubeSat, which I'm sure a number of your listeners are familiar with. The one we're building is, is a 3U CubeSat, so it's sort of the size of a loaf of bread roughly and weighs about three kilograms. What we've done is, is build a CubeSat as sort of the mothership for about 100 of these sprites, our chip sats, our smaller satellites. The CubeSat mothership, which is what we call KickSat, is actually what's getting launched in a little over a month now. Once that's up in space, we're going to make contact with it from our ground station and uh, command it to release all of the the little guys, all the chipsets.
4: Now, the launch is on a a Falcon rocket, a a SpaceX Falcon. It's part of a supply mission to the the International Space Station. And your satellite's sort of a a part of that mission. It's a sort of piggyback on top of that.
0: Yeah, that's right. So this is... um, Typically, how CubeSats are launched, these smaller satellites, they're launched as uh, what are called secondary payloads. If you imagine a, a big rocket like the SpaceX Falcon 9 that we're riding on, the fairing at the top, you know, they'll they'll put uh, whatever the primary payload is inside that rocket fairing, and there's typically still a bunch of space left over and you know little nooks and crannies here and there. They uh, often will open it up to secondary payloads. So if you are okay with going to the same orbit as the primary payload you can sort of hitch a ride on that rocket for, in, in aerospace terms, not a lot of money. There's also several other CubeSats going up on our launch with us, as also secondary payloads. So the primary mission, like you said, is, is a resupply mission to the International Space Station. And we're going to be riding at the tail end of the upper stage of the rocket. We'll get up into orbit. The Dragon capsule, which is at the top of the upper stage and is carrying all the supplies to the ISS, will separate from the upper stage and go off towards the ISS, while we'll be left behind, attached to the back end of the upper stage. And uh, I guess a certain amount of time later, when it's deemed safe, they will release us as well.
4: How long after separation, so launch separation, will you actually start getting a, a signal
0: from these? From when the CubeSat's deployed to when the transmitter goes on on the mothership, it's 45 minutes. From there, it's it's going to be about a week before we actually deploy the sprites.
4: And how long will they last before they then burn up in the
0: atmosphere? So that's a surprisingly hard question to answer. It'll be days, but the exact timing is really hard to predict. As I don't know if you've seen uh, a few months ago, there was that German satellite that, that re-entered and there was like a two-day range and they didn't know when or where it was going to come down. It's that sort of thing. The reason it's so hard is because the atmosphere and the, the dynamics of the uh, very thin upper atmosphere where, where satellites fly is really uh, unpredictable. It varies based on the seasons and uh, the weather and and the solar cycle and all this kind of thing. And the atmospheric density up there can vary by several orders of magnitude. So the the drag, which is what pulls the satellite down, can vary tremendously, like over many orders of magnitude in, in this region of low Earth orbit where these things are. So it's really, really difficult to predict anything with any certainty.
4: Zach Manchester looking forward to the launch of Kicksat, which is currently scheduled for March the 16th, and we will, of course, be following it closely. Um, what do we think of this?
5: Well, this is about democratisation of space, again, that you can own your own little spacecraft, and that spacecraft is like Sputnik. This is Sputnik for the masses, not Sputnik built by some uh, incredibly wealthy government agency. Uh, this is going to be in- entirely analogous to sputnik because you can get it as it comes past to send you that preloaded text message the fascination for geeky people i guess is fantastic <laughs> of course there will be many people who just don't get that but i think it's incredible
2: what about you abby is it something i know you know it's probably quite blasé you've worked on so many missions that uh, does the thought of a postage stamp size satellite with your name on it
3: appeal It's a great idea. It's always great to see these really innovative new ideas coming into space because these are the things that are probably going to change the way that we look at developing satellites in the future. So with miniaturization you can do useful things with very small devices. So it is perfectly reasonable now to think that we can do swarm missions and have these little sprites and do useful science with them. So that's really exciting.
2: Well, thanks again to our guests here at Airbus in Stevenage, Abby Hutty and Matthew Stuttard. Perhaps you could get this going again, Abby. That would be great. We might as well hear a little bit of the prototype Mars rover before we end the podcast. Here we go. Excellent. We'll take some pictures of the rover and stick them on our Facebook page, where you can also let us know what you think about the podcast and also the stories we cover.
4: Within reason. And that's the Space Boffins podcast, produced in partnership with the Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. I'm Richard Hollingham.
2: And I'm Sue Nelson, and we'll be back next month. Thanks for listening.